What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett, head of retirement research at PGM. David, th there was a really interesting new article that came out a couple of weeks ago on Social Science Research Network about bubble wealth and this whole idea that there is a component of wealth that may exist on our balance sheet, but it doesn't really represent real assets. And how should we think about wealth, which is based on the value of the last transaction for that asset, but may not really represent anything of true value. Now, the example that was given is, let's say that we have three people in an economy, and one person creates a story about how a coin has value. And the second person says, all right, I buy that story. I think it's, you know, there's, there's a legitimate reason why the coin might have value. I'm going to give you $10 for that coin. And then another person says, hey, wait a minute. I need to get in on this market. I'm willing to pay $20 for that coin. So person three is sitting on something that they paid $20 for. Person two has just gotten 20 bucks and added to their wealth. The entire wealth of the economy has grown, but has the capacity of the economy grown? What is the source of value? And the only thing that you can trace that source of value to is a narrative, is the idea that it is in human heads, this concept that that thing that somebody invented has value. Now, it may have value as a medium of exchange, especially in black market transactions, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, it doesn't represent anything that is adding productive capacity to society. And that really has gotten me thinking a lot about when we look at a balance sheet, how much of the value of those assets really represents the true value. One of the things that also contributes to this debate is evidence that financial assets tend to be highly elastic. In other words, when there is money flowing into those assets, the value of it tends to grow up. So think about that coin. If the value of that coin goes from $50 to $100, all of a sudden, the value of wealth has gone up significantly for everybody who's holding that coin. But if everybody decided or a significant number of people decided to liquidate that coin, they could not liquidate it at the value of the last transaction. So that value of the last transaction is what we use to estimate balance sheet wealth. But if we all had to liquidate those assets, everything would have to move down to its true fundamental value, which means that so much of the value that we place on people's retirement wealth or any other type of assets is based on the last time it traded and is a little bit shaky, probably more shaky than we would like to admit. Do you think that that's true? Is this something that bothers you, David, that part of your wealth is actually built on this foundation that is based on everybody's mutual understanding that these assets have value, but if we liquidated them all too quickly, that wealth would decline quickly? I think the, the point that you raised that is noteworthy 
to some extent, is that a balance sheet doesn't capture the volatility component of the assets. I think you might be referring to cryptocurrency. I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I think you can make the same, same argument back in the 1990s, right? I mean, you know, when you're talking about, you know, an asset that appreciated significantly, the question of its fundamental value and the implications of a market shock, we saw that, right? We saw what happened in 2000-ish, plus the next three or four years, individuals that bought into, you know, the dot-com bubble, right? And individuals that made that choice obviously had a significant negative impact because of that. You know, if you retired, just for example, just before the, the market burst, based upon that last traded price, your net worth evolved significantly in a negative direction over that time period. I guess as you talk about it, though, I think, you know, to me, it's it's the implications of realized wealth and spending versus effectively paper profits. I mean, a lot of folks have made money off of, for example, cryptocurrencies, but until you capture those gains, are they really real, right? And if everybody tried to capture those gains at once, you'd have a big problem because the markets would begin to fail because those types of investments tend to be very elastic. When a lot of people try to sell them at the same time, the price goes down significantly. And that, that really starts to raise a question about what is the liquidation value of people's wealth? You know, where is that bottom point? One of the reasons this has been bothering me recently is that the price of all financial assets is so high, generally speaking, right now. So the price, especially the US stock market, is very high. The price of safe assets is very high. But that doesn't mean that that represents the true fundamental value of those assets. It just means that that's what it traded at the last time someone bought or sold that stock. Now, if there's a lot of velocity, if the government is coming in and they're buying a lot of especially lower quality bonds, that means that it continues to bid the price of those assets up and the yield goes down. But at some point, there is a true fundamental price. There's not a whole lot of price discovery going on in the marketplace right now. But when it does happen, a lot of that wealth could vaporize down to what we think is a reasonable value for that particular type of asset. And especially when it comes to something like a stock, I think if we take a step back and think about what that value represents, it's a very esoteric value it technically gives you the right of ownership, but what does that actually mean? It gives you potentially voting rights, but I'm never gonna be able to vote. So my vote is not going to matter. What do I get access to? Well, dividends, well, a lot of companies don't pay dividends anymore. So what thing of value do I actually own? Now with US stocks, because of mergers and acquisitions, that value is less esoteric, but with something like Chinese equities, where we may not actually have the ability to go in and buy that Chinese company. If it's partially owned by the state, then mergers and acquisitions is no longer part of the game. What is the value of that thing? Well, it may not necessarily have value in any different sort of form than crypto has value. It's just an asset that we've all collectively designed has a certain value, but what is its true fundamental value? There may be a lot of paper wealth that at some point the market is going to start to question the prices could fall pretty quickly. I think you could make other lines of argument too, right? So like has the rise in passive investing helped or hurt the markets, right? You're giving investors access to investments at a lower cost, but it doesn't necessarily encourage price discovery, right? So I think that you, you keep talking about fundamental value, like what is that value? I think that the definition of what something's worth is always evolving, it's always changing. I worry more about investors that make decisions based upon highly volatile assets 
but the price is constantly evolving over time. So, you know, you mentioned cryptocurrencies, you mentioned foreign equities, you could do it in, with individual stocks. To me, I, I just see risk there. It's just, you're just talking about like the nature of volatility, where if something bad happens, it can be a lot more significant. Am I worried about, you know, the funny thing is you talk about like GE being like the definition of a safe stock. We all saw what happened there, right? So I think that, you know, I think that maybe your larger point is there's this perception that we'll always get our money back. But I think now more than ever, if there is any kind of run of the markets in, in any in any corner, it could be have a huge negative impact for lots of investors, lots of Americans. One of the things that I worry about, frankly, is that a lot of people are deciding to retire today based on the valuations of those assets that may not be that stable. They you know, always it, do, it, though, right? Like we've seen this time and time again. We right? have, we have. People, and and it's one of the things that I'm afraid of, you know, like, do we use historical valuations as a way of saying, all right, you know, I have enough to be able to retire? Well, you, know, you can get the exact same amount of portfolio income from a $1 million portfolio today from a $250,000 portfolio in the early 1990s. So 20 years ago, exactly, it would take $250,000 to generate the same amount of income in retirement as a million dollars today from a 50-50 portfolio of the S&P 500 and 10-year treasuries. That means that asset prices are really high, but that doesn't necessarily mean how prepared you are for retirement is the same as someone who had a million dollars back in the early 1990s. That's a psychological problem, but it's all based on this idea that what defines the value of that financial asset is the last price that it traded for. You, you see this all the time. I mean, I'm sure individuals are retiring right now because they got in early on crypto and they've got tons of money and they're going to leave it there to fund their retirement. And, and maybe it just keeps going up, but they're just due for this shock. And I think that people delay retirement when markets go down, when in fact, that could be the best time to retire, right? Because that's when valuations are low. I, I just don't know, especially right now, like what you do about it. Okay. So right now you've got, you, you mentioned this painfully low rates on bonds, a, a massively overvalued stock market potentially, but then, so what do you do, right? I mean, in theory, what you should work longer now because expected returns are lower, but I don't know that people actually want to do that. Give your clients the retirement security they need with our retirement income certified professional designation. Visit the americancollege.edu slash RICP to learn more. Get best-in-class preparation for your exam with our CFP Certification Education Program. Start your journey toward this valued designation at theamericancollege.edu slash CFP. Let's continue where we left off. Well, I think we have to be realistic. We have to recognize that there is a market value today, and there is an expectation of the fundamental value of that asset. And if there's a big divergence, then you have to be cautious about especially your expectations of the future returns that you're going to get from those assets. And we've, we've mentioned this before in prior podcasts. I do see it. I actually go on some of these discussion boards of retirees and I see people encouraging other retirees to retire because they've met their threshold goal. They wanted to have $500,000 and then they feel comfortable retiring. But what is that $500,000? Now, this also, you, you mentioned a point about price discovery and passive investing. And I'm not going to ignore the possibility that elasticity affects passive investing as well. And we've seen this with additions and deletions from the S&P 500. When a stock gets added to the S&P 500, increasingly it has a more and more significant bump on the price of that asset. All of a sudden, there is all of this guaranteed flow into shares of stock of that company 
from investors who are socking the money away every month in their 401k. So what you're doing is you're creating this situation of pressure. And if stocks are elastic, it's going to continue to push the price of those stocks up eventually beyond their fundamental value. So that's one of the dangers of passive investing. We may not be anywhere close to that right now, but the reality is that once a stock, once a company enters the S&P 500, it is guaranteed a flow of savings. Now, what that also means is that when it no longer gets that flow, so when a stock exits the S&P 500, there's an immediate negative impact on price. Or when the market starts to absorb the possibility that that stock might exit the S&P 500, has a negative impact on price, is the company really that much less valuable? Or is it simply the mechanics of the market that are defining the value of the asset. And in that case, you have to recognize that part of the value of that asset, part of the value of the S&P 500 is not real value. It is value of it being part of an index. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this. I'm, a, I'm an advisor, I'm an investor. So what do I do, right? I mean, I think one takeaway obviously is to be mindful of the volatility of your assets and that the fact you've got paper wealth. Another is you need to use realistic return expectations when your model is thinking about high valuations. What are the other key takeaways? I think it's it's to recognize, especially in periods where there tends to be asset inflation, like there are right now, that you can't bank on inflated assets to provide true lifestyle in retirement, 10 years, 20 years in the future. That is a highly risky asset to bank your lifestyle on 10 years in the future. And to start thinking, what portion of my portfolio can I really count on to fund a lifestyle in the future? If it's an asset, especially if it's an asset that's appreciated a lot recently, a lot of people tend to jump into that asset because they focus too much on recent returns. That can inflate the value of that asset well beyond what it's actually going to be worth 10 years down the line. So you have to take a longer term perspective and you have to help a client avoid this tendency to fixate on today's value of their portfolio and recognize that that value is subject to variation, especially with volatile assets. This is a number that could get smaller. Are we still in a good position to meet our goals if the number does get smaller? This is Chris, one of the producers of Wealth Managed, and I can't help but get philosophical or even theological about what you're talking about. You are talking about a matter of faith. And if we don't believe, the whole thing can disappear. Is that what you're talking about here? Are you asking that fundamental of a question? I've made this point before that our belief in the valuation of a share of stock is similar to the amount of faith that you have to have to have a religious conviction in a concept, because what it's actually giving you is not much. The value of that share is, you know, this sort of weird idea about voting rights, which we don't necessarily exercise. This idea that we're eligible to receive a dividend from the stock, that we are a partial owner. And we have to believe collectively that this concept of a share actually has value that we're willing to every month put money into shares of stock that we collectively feel have value and are going to go up in the future. But that value rests on the idea that markets are operating in a semi-efficient way, that at some point down the road, there's going to be someone else who's going to place the same amount of value or more on a share of stock that you did. They're willing to pay that share value for that company. But there are other assets 
where that value really does require more faith, that belief that something does have value, despite the fact that if everybody decided to liquidate, you would have nothing but ether, you know, nothing but that faith. And in that case, we have to start maybe being a little bit more thoughtful about what the true value of that asset is and what the downside of holding that potential asset would be. Well, self-interest just tells me I'm going to bail and the rest of you, hey, good luck. I got my profits. I'm good. Okay, I'm letting go and moving on. Is it just self-interest that ultimately threatens the system too? Well, I think that a lot of people think that they're going to be able to bail at the right time. And if I, if I have to look at what I see people doing in the market, I see people focusing too much on trying to create a narrative. I think that's the whole purpose of these Reddit boards is to try to build a collective narrative around the value of a share of stock. Everybody convinces each other that it has value. But if it's only a small community of people who believe that it has value, it may be enough to push the price up because it may not take that many actors in the marketplace to push a price up on the fundamental value. But at some point, they have to start selling it to people out of that community of true believers. And if the community of non-true believers does not hold the same opinion as the true believers, you can see the value of that asset dropping quickly. And I think that this is a lesson that every generation needs to learn, that we all fall in love with certain types of financial assets too much. In some cases, we place too much faith that the value is always going to go up. And eventually we have to reach the point where we turn our assets into something that we can use to go out to dinner. And if we can't do that, if we haven't timed it right, if we didn't get out, if there's not a sucker who's willing to buy that asset off of us, that's where we get in trouble. And David has no interest in this conversation whatsoever. Uh, it is just not practical enough, or it's just not concrete enough. What are you guys talking about? Right, David? So, you know, I think that there is there is a theme here that is important, right? In that just because you have, we're worth a million dollars today doesn't mean that you will be tomorrow. And I think too often people put too much emphasis on achieving that number that Michael talked about before when it could all go away. And I don't want to like scare people in terms of, you know, the market itself going to zero, but I think people don't often realize that that what got them to their wealth isn't always the same thing. If you have a million dollars in treasury bills, that will be a million dollars tomorrow. If your million dollars consists of a portfolio that's, I don't know, cryptocurrencies, a single stock, you know, emerging markets, all these other volatile asset classes, that could change considerably. And so until you realize those gains, it's all just on paper. So I think that that to me is the key theme here. Again, I'm, I'm less concerned about like all the more kind of interesting arguments of things going to zero, but wealth can change dramatically based upon what you're invested in. That's a great point, David. Uh, I think we'll end on that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Wealth Managed Podcast. I'm Michael Finca. I'm David Blanchett. See you later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services.